Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chris McFall. He is a sommelier and the current wine director over at Single Thread in Heldsburg, California. Single Thread is a three Michelin star restaurant. It's pretty much perennially on the world's 50 best restaurant list. They've taken home numerous awards and accolades, food and wine, wine enthusiast grand awards, like all this stuff. So it's among the best restaurants we have in the country, also wine country too as well. They're up in Heldsburg, which is maybe like 30 minutes or so north of kind of Sonoma proper, you know, kind of downtown Sonoma where you'd stay if you're doing all the Sonoma wineries and everything. We made the trek up there in an Uber and back, so it wasn't ridiculous or anything like that. It wasn't super crazy long or super expensive, but if you have a car, obviously it's going to be way easier to just go yourself. It's a small little town. There's a couple different restaurants there. They just opened a wine bar not too long ago. They have plans to open uh, additional concepts. I think they just opened one, um, Bad Saint, which was kind of a little casual spinoff or something like that, um, two not too long ago. And above the restaurant is like a five-bedroom kind of inn. And then the farm itself is not actually too far away from the restaurant, but they have plans uh, in the works to build a much larger farm in size so they're able to grow more specialty ingredients for the restaurant, things like that. So Kyle Connaughton is the chef over kind of running the restaurant. And then his wife, Katrina, is the person who runs the farm aspect, uh, essentially. And they're married and they've been doing it for a number of years, but... Single Thread itself has been open, I think, since like 2016, 17, something like that. So it's not super old in terms of, you know, a restaurant. It achieved all this status relatively quickly, too. As soon as they kind of came on the scene, they were a fast riser through the Michelin ranks and everything. And and now they're one of, I think, seven, three Michelin-starred restaurants in the U.S. It's either seven or eight. Most of them are in California. There's a couple in New York City. And then the only one in Chicago is Alinier. Chris is the wine director there, so um, you know we were able to get him on the podcast. A shout out to Tanya from uh, Suited Hospitality, helping kind of coordinate and reaching out and, and setting this up. But awesome conversation. Just single thread is a little bit different in, in the style. It's a little bit more kind of Japanese focused, just from the chef Kyle, his time in Japan that he spent, and that's kind of the cuisine that he's really focused on and really into so you get some of those aspects and then you also get the local farm kind of to table aspect and and all that stuff too as well so the cuisine's amazing and and just learning about how they go about kind of pairing the wine and and chris's career and everything kind of coming up through texas and spending a lot of time in houston and, and different stuff like that and eventually finding his way out to the bay area and lazy bear and then eventually getting up to single thread where he kind of wanted to work and had some connections within the wine industry when he was going through all the exams too as well. So pretty fascinating story and just kind of getting some more background on single thread and and what they got going on and kind of what makes it so special on the wine program side of things. So you can follow Chris on Instagram. Uh, His handle is at P-Y-C-M-C-F-A-L-L. So P-Y-C- mcfall his instagram handle you can also follow the restaurant it's at single thread farms and you can follow us on instagram too as well at spoon mob check out our website spoonmob.com links to all of our episodes different profiles updates for any of our guests that have come on wine photos food photos too as well restaurant photos business photos anybody who's been on all that stuff is kind of there a lot of it makes its way to our instagram account eventually but it all starts there with the website so if you haven't been to the website in a while 
things have probably been updated since you've been there. Keep it up to date regularly. Uh, and if you're kind of a frequent viewer, continue to do so. Really appreciate that. There is a contact portal on the website. You can reach out to us, write in questions, comments, feedback. If there's something that you have wanted to ask a sommelier, a chef, anything like that, you can write that in and we'll get that incorporated into the upcoming episode that it kind of fits the best with uh, in terms of kind of questions and, and topics and everything. And then we'll hit you up and let you know when that episode is coming out and who it was and everything. So, you know, kind of what to expect and you know what episode you were a part of. So there's no limit on those. You can submit as many questions as you want. We just kind of pick the best ones, but you can write in other feedback, uh, recommendations if you need recommendations for some place that you're going stuff like that too we usually get those for the guests towards the end of the podcast episode but uh, if there's something you know that you're interested in and, and wanted to know our opinion on it we've had a couple of people reach out hey where should i go eat in nashville and, and stuff like that so happy to oblige um, feel free to write all that in uh, you can also hit us up directly uh, by our email too at spoonmomayahoo.com if you don't want to use the website contact portal but it's on the front page of the website and then make sure to follow the podcast whatever platform that you use most everybody uses Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, we have a link in our Instagram bio that'll take you to all that stuff. Um, we put links for the individual episodes out when we post them in our story or whatever too. You can find it either through the website. You can go on the app and just search Spoon Mob. You'll see our logo. Just click a little check mark button that has you following it. And then all new episodes would drop straight in your feed. Those come out on Thursdays. 1 a.m. is when they release. Uh, 1 a.m. Eastern time. So if you're on the West Coast, that'd be Wednesday, 10 p.m. If you're in a different time zone, that's the time that it releases. You can also find us on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel. Some people prefer YouTube as their podcast kind of listening app or platform. So we put everything up on YouTube too as well. So you can check it out there if that's kind of your preferred method for how you consume podcasts. But without any further delays or updates for you guys, here's my conversation with sommelier and single thread farms wine director, Chris McFall. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day, coming on the podcast talk some wine and in your career and everything. We had the pleasure of eating at Single Thread. It was, I think, about a year before you actually joined uh, the restaurant. It was 2019. I looked at the menu that was on our wall just to double check the date. It was like April 2019 when we went there. But we had a, a great time when we went there. Obviously, the aesthetic hasn't changed. Some stuff, cuisine has changed a little bit. They opened up a new smaller more casual concept i guess is what it, you would call it but i want to get into you know why you joined single thread what made you want to work there and what you've been doing is you know since you've been taking over the wine program as the wine director but i always like to start at the beginning with everybody for you know context and everything how did you kind of first get started with wine because you grew up in austin right you weren't born there but you're kind of raised there that's correct. Well, first, thanks for having me on. I love the podcast and, and what you're doing is pretty cool. So thanks for having me on. I'm honored. I grew up in the Austin area by way of, of St. Joseph, Michigan. So the, my early formidable years were in southwest corner of Michigan. Uh, we moved to Texas when I was 10 uh, in the early 90s. Um, and I was uh, truly under the impression that everybody rode a horse to school and, and things like that. I thought that I was going to have to wear cowboy boots. And that was just it. Quite the contrary, everybody still wore cool sneakers and whatnot. I lived in Austin, uh, grew up a little bit north of Austin, a little cute town called Georgetown that is just like Austin has exploded and boomed and it's fun little uh, food scene as well there. And while I was in college, I started working in uh, some upper echelon restaurants. One of them in particular uh, that helped me bite the bug uh, was a place called Monica's 701. It was in this old Masonic building, and it was a little bit ahead of its time as far as what I think uh, Georgetown, Texas was, was ready for uh, at that moment. Uh, so it was relatively slow. The addition of Sun City 
retirement community, uh, I think kept that place afloat for the times that I was there. Uh, and then prom and date nights on the weekends were always busy. Uh, but the food was progressive. The wine list was pretty deep. And I knew very little about wine other than its importance in the meal for people. Um, and that I put a little extra money in my pocket as a college student. During that time, I had uh, a roommate whose family was uh, from Italy who sent some really spectacular wines. Uh, and I was in the Coors Original and, and Jägermeister camp at the time. Uh, and that's about where my palate was. And I tasted this 1967 Bertani Amarone from, uh, from Valpolicella in the Veneto. It blew my socks off. I never knew that a, that a beverage could be so unbelievably captivating. It still gives me goosebumps on the back of my neck when I think about it. And it was really at that moment that I started to pay a little bit more attention to wine. I bought Karen McNeil's The Wine Bible and learned enough to be ignorantly dangerous at a table and then started to focus in on like the service aspect of wine and kind of that ritual table side. And it, it, I just bit the bug. I had a really great boss uh, who was super supportive of a 21-year-old kid who wanted to learn more about wine. And I'm sure I annoyed the hell out of him. In those moments, obviously, you know, we could take our time for the most part at, at Monica's. So I wasn't exactly the fastest of service. I really focused in on knife cuts and foil cuts and got a lot of help there. I was jumped on the opportunity to open bottles at the at the well on busy nights to make sure that the by the glass station was set up. Um, and I really just, I was into it. You know, one of the most important moments in, in that early part of my career was we had this mixed case of Burgundy from Bouchard Perrette I was very curious about a particular vintage 1993. I knew nothing about Burgundy, really nothing. And my boss sent me home with a bottle of 1993 Bouchard Perrette Fille, uh, Vangelin Jesus, wine of the baby Jesus, really spectacular uh, vineyard. I went to a, uh, a friend's house and they were having a, a party, which was definitely uh, more keg oriented than, uh, than it was wine oriented for sure. But I opened that bottle and I wish I had the discipline looking back to, to hang on to it. But I was, uh, it was all the rage. Everybody was curious what was in the glass and why we weren't paying attention to the keg. And it was a really, really special, special wine experience. And from then I kind of bit the burgundy bug and really went down a, a few too many rabbit holes with that. And it should have been the prelude. Uh, that I was given this this kind of rare and fine wine uh, from from my boss, but the next week we were informed that the restaurant was shutting down and, and changing hands. So from there, I, I went looking for for the next big challenge. When you get to college, did you have any knowledge of the wine industry before then, or anything like that? Not on any scale, really. We would watch The Godfather and drink, you know, cheap bottles of of Chianti. And when I say cheap, it, it more like jugs of Chianti. I really didn't understand the levels, the arcs, uh, all of the depth that goes into the supply chain management of, of the world of wine. I had no idea. In the romanticized sense, it really clicked on how important um, the beverage part uh, was with the part of the meal. And that part of the ritual was really captivating to me. And that's kind of where I started appreciating it. And then from there, I really kind of quickly realized how how much bigger uh, this subject matter was. It wasn't just, you know, California Pinot and, and some Italian stuff and a French thing here and there. It was the, the world of wine. And it goes so much deeper than I could possibly have fathomed. But it did tickle some of the senses that that I was very intrigued by. You know, it was uh, art, science and history and and kind of transporting yourself to a place via a bottle, a place in time. That really kind of motivated me to, to continue to learn. And the big takeaway is it's such an important part of the people business. And I think wine and food is one of the last great 
truly hands-on, tangible people businesses uh, left. So when you were in college, what was your intended career path before you pivoted to the wine industry? What were you thinking about doing? I had so many things. I have been one of those people that is uh, curious, George, uh, my whole life. So I dabbled in a whole lot of things. I wasn't really sure. Uh, I had a lot of interests in in history and film and architecture. So I took a lot of classes and I, I you know, I, I went down a lot of roads with really no no end result. So it was like, you know, when someone tells you that they're an English major, I was a, a curious major. I, I dabbled in a lot of things and I wasn't really quite sure where I wanted to take it and, and what I wanted to do. Um, and as I started to ascend into finer dining or, or more voluminous dining, I realized quickly that that's what I wanted to do. So I studied history and, and Spanish were kind of the backbones of my education. Slowly but surely, my time reading textbooks turned into reading wine books and, and buying these books like Sotheby's Wine Encyclopedia and Hugh Johnson's The Wine Atlas and, and just really deep diving in there. And I found quickly that my curiosity for wine completely outweighed any passions that I might have had for anything else. I had you know, been looking for something, started working at this, this place in Austin that I don't even know if it's there any longer, but at the time it was all the rage. Uh, it was a Del Frisco's steakhouse spinoff called Sullivan's, the first one. And I was one of the younger kids who worked there. But I, I think it was like a three-week period where I, I went in every day to this restaurant because of their wine list and gave my resume and application every day for like three weeks. Uh, I sat through an entire service in the waiting room one night until someone would talk to me, and they finally did. And for some reason, they hired a 22-year-old kid. Uh, I dove right in uh, all the way. I had a really... There was a, a, an amazing uh, sommelier there at the time, Julie Lynn, who now works in, in Oregon. But she, the way that she walked around the room, the way that her presence graced the dining room, I was like, man, oh man, that is just, she is on another level of what I ever thought that this could be. Uh, and she left to go pursue uh, an opportunity in Las Vegas. And the replacement was a gentleman named Kent Wagerman, uh, who now I think is national sales for, for Jordan, but a, a lovely guy and spent a lot of time helping kind of coach me through the ins and outs of of the world of wine at Sullivan Steakhouse. Looking back, obviously, it's a, a completely different list than, than I would have been charmed to work at or, or lured in by. Uh, but there was things from all over the world. And, you know, my basic first responsibilities were making sure that the crystal glasses were ready to rock and roll for the upper echelon bottles of wine and putting by the glass things away and like understanding that layer. And I just loved it. Uh, I loved the organization aspect of it. I, I loved making sure vetting bins. I, I thought it was just the greatest thing of all time. And I slowly but surely became a bit of a seller rat. And then from there, I told my parents uh, that, you know, I wanted to pursue wine as, a, as an avenue. And much to my surprise, they were both like, all right, like, this is awesome. Let's do it. So they were super supportive. I, I had some great mentors uh, around Austin. And at the time, Austin was chock full of, of people going for it. And some of the people in my, my immediate circle at that time were Mark Sayer, uh, June Rodill, and Craig Collins, and Devin Broly, and many, many other people that weren't necessarily associated with the court, but they kind of lured me towards uh, choosing that avenue in a positive way. I took the intro and I was floored. I thought I knew something about wine and I realized I knew nothing. Um, and so I really took it as an opportunity to like hit the books, hit the ground running, learned everything that I possibly could. I was offered a position at a, at a restaurant owned by CRO in Austin at the same time. We're going to, you're going to hear the word steakhouse quite a bit. Um, but I worked at uh, a place called 
Three Forks Steakhouse, which their list was incredible. The dedication to to wine in that building was right when you walked in, you could see it to this beautiful glass cellar. And this was like a place of professional professional uh, servers and captains and people who were seasoned in the business and knew their ins and outs and this. And I was still, you know, kind of scratching and clawing to try to keep up. And my boss there at the time, uh, I think, knew that he had a really cool uh, and really really excited young core. Uh, and he gave us some responsibilities. He gave us some areas of expertise and we, we took it and ran with it. And it was one of the more exciting dining rooms. It was always busy. There was always cool wine that was going out and it was, it was just such a great, a great experience. So I took the certified sommelier exam. And at the time I wanted to get it done so quickly. I was, I think 24 or 25 at the time. That's hard for me to even put that in place. It feels like a million years ago. But I signed up and I didn't realize I signed up for an exam in Tucson. And I had a credit card, I think, that had like a $350 limit. So I couldn't rent a car, could barely rent a hotel. So I, I asked my dad if he would help. And of course, he, he did. He's a gentleman. I was on a connecting flight from Austin to Dallas. And I looked at the gate and this newspaper, this guy's reading a newspaper and it comes down. It's my dad. He went with me to Tucson. We had a great time. Uh, but I ended, up, I ended up passing that exam. I think this was in 2008. And it did really well. And it felt like I was on top of the world. Still, you know, really just scratching the surface of, of knowledge and understanding that I, I knew enough to be <laughs> dangerous to everything. But it was a really, really great moment. And from there, I was offered uh, a position uh, to work uh, at this redone version of this, this 200-year-old house. It's now a law office. It's kind of sad. But working with a, a chef named Shane Stark. So the next time that you're in Austin, you need to go check out his restaurant, Mongers. He's a wizard when it comes to things, uh, all things seafood. Um, this restaurant was really, really stunning and something that Austin hadn't really seen. Uchi at the time was kind of the, the creme de la creme. Jeffrey's the previous round before McGuire Mormon. Uh, Lambert Hospitality took, took the reins on that. Uh, kind of laid the groundwork for that. And there were some really great restaurants in town, but nothing quite as ambitious as this. Um, they rebuilt the the patio. This this place was absolutely stunning. It's a 200-year-old building that was formerly a house, and it was just stunning. It was kind of the place to be and place to be seen. And they offered me a job as a as a server, and it's kind of a, a server som role. Uh, and one of my buddies from Three Forks was the, the wine director at the time, and we were both young enough to be to be dangerous. And he was kind of in an unfortunate motorcycle accident, but the restaurant group was growing. Uh, so while he was out, he gave me the blessing to, to take over and, and do this, that, and the other thing. And they offered him the position as he had a culinary background to help get this other restaurant off the ground, kind of getting tossed like a snowball into hell. I was promoted. And so I took a real hard look at, at this place uh, and this program, and it had a lot of usual suspects that we see on steakhouses. And this was like a much more delicate French and, and Japanese influence. His background is in sushi. And so it was a much more delicate uh, plate, not necessarily like here's some garlic mashed potatoes and some, some lobster mac and cheese to go with your slab and, and cab. There was a lot of usual suspects. There was a lot of big named Napa producers and things like that on the program. And during that time, you know, I was learning more. I was going to more tastings. I was, my access to purveyors was a little bit bigger and brighter. And I, I had some really incredible wine reps that, that really helped show, put things in front of me that, that all of a sudden things just started to click. So it was a small house, a more artisanal place. It was a, a, a scratch kitchen in every sense of the word. 
And so I started to dive into to that aspect of, of the world of wine. Like how can, I know that I can see this at, at a grocery store. I can see this at the local liquor store, sometimes a gas station. Let's, let's try harder to not have those things, you know, clear and present. Not that they're not fine and dandy. <clears throat> Never going to talk down about Louis Jadot, Beaujolais Village. I've had many a great nights with that one. But I wanted something that was a little bit more indicative of, of how much care was taken in the kitchen and how much care was taken with the plateware selections, the silverware selections, the glassware selections. And so we, we turned this really two-page wine list into a 30-page mini behemoth. It was a great opportunity. The ownership was, was super supportive of, of the decisions that I was making uh, and then helped me with the mathematical and organizational side of of the business, which was super. And we were able to, to hit a bit of a walk-off home run there. It became a, a mini wine destination. There was there was some press about some stuff and it helped put it on the map. Moreover, it, it really helped us gain more access to, to some cooler things uh, from the Rhone Valley and, and from all over. And I had a gentleman, there was someone who was scratched on this France trip along that, that time. I might've been 25 or 26. I had been to California's wine regions once. I'd Worked for Guy Stout in his vineyards in Texas once, and that's kind of a rite of passage in Texas. If you if you don't pick some wine for Guy, you haven't really made it. He's such a gem. Learned a ton, but uh, I was someone was scratched from the trip uh, to France, and I got this invite about seven days before the trip left, and I, my passport was expired, so it was like a, a mad dash. And I'm on this trip with with people who are you know sitting for the for the MS exam or going the MW route or been running these books as salespeople for for many moons. And I felt like I was the kid who who had to catch up a little bit. And we got there uh, and I was completely taken aback by not only the being in France, uh, but seeing all these things that I'd only read about in in books and putting that that knowledge into something a lot more tangible. And it was a 14 day death march through France. We started in in Paris, we matriculated down to Bordeaux, went to the Languedoc, up to uh, the Southern Rhone Valley, Northern Rhone, and then anchored in Burgundy. Uh, and and that previous 1993 Bouchard Paris Fille, Bon de l'Enfant, that started a, a deep rabbit hole and a deep dive into Burgundy, was only expounded by the, the five or so days that we stayed in Burgundy and tasted with all of these amazing producers from, from Becky Wasserman to, you know, all of the other magical domains in the in the region but really getting a sense of of scale my idea of a tasting room was completely debunked when we were in burgundy it's grab a glass and uh watch your head uh and this is a, a fun barrel sample you might get a fun bottle depending on how buzzed the wine making team was in burgundy but it was kind of a a really amazing blitz there was no fancy tables no fancy glassware no really no tasting room whatsoever you were in in the mix in a cold cellar. And uh, I left it out, but this is a, a trip that was happening in January. So it's, it's freezing down in the cellars. Uh, just an amazing, uh, amazing trip, an amazing time. We got back to Paris. I got home and I, I was like speed talking about every detail of the trip. I just couldn't believe it. We ate at so many great restaurants. We, we tasted so many great wines. Uh, and I turned that aspect into uh, really ramping up the Burgundian uh, selections in, in the restaurant. And it slowly but surely became something that we were known for and, and written about and, and people would come to celebrate it. And we also obviously celebrated Oregon and California. And, and I tried to, uh, I guess, tie the lineage of, uh, of where it started and how it's going as much as possible. And Pinot kind of uh, became the, the thing. 
at the restaurant. So Pinot and, and Chardonnay, and no shortage of champagne. But that restaurant, I worked there for for five glorious years in all different types of arcs, and it was a it was a, a really really special experience uh, to work there. There's a lot of people that that I still consider family members <laughs> from from my formidable time there for sure. But it was a great growing experience. And then uh, from there, working on opening my own project with uh, with a couple of investors and uh, getting it off the ground. At the time, I was uh, I was studying for the the advanced sommelier exam and the CMS and uh, moonlighting at, at a friend of mine's uh, bar just to keep myself in the game and intrigued. And uh, I was doing a lot of things that I'd never done before, like uh, starting an LLC and speaking to lawyers and and watching money go out the door for this this thing and it ended up not working out. We had spent a good amount of money. A lot of it was was my savings and a lot of it was other people's uh, hard earned money. And it, it just unfortunately, as it goes in the restaurant business, it kind of I felt like I was kind of left holding the bag a little bit and needed something. So I went on a countrywide tour uh, and a little bit of an international tour, looking for where could I be impactful. Uh, and where also can I get my butt kicked and what would be the best place for me? So I went, I really went, if you name it, I probably went there. I came close to working with uh, Bobby Stuckey and Lachlan McKinnon-Patterson at, at Frosca Food and Wine. And I love to tell this this story because I, I, I think the world of Bobby and Lachlan and, and uh, their operation, how they had done it the right way for so many years. But it was a long interview process with them. It came down to Maybe it's two, maybe it's not, but Carlin Carr, who who still works there, her genius, they went with her and they made the right decision. I don't think that I was I was ready to to take on such a amazing program. Bobby flew down to Austin and let me know in person over dinner. I'll never forget that. I, I was like, well, that you didn't have to do it. You could have broken up with me over the phone, but I appreciate it. But it was such an amazing experience going through that. We we talked about Italian wine, we talked about strengths and weaknesses, we talked about what it's really all about. And I think the only major heartbreak there for me, uh, selfishly, was I didn't get an opportunity to to walk the floor uh, and learn learn from Bobby. But I realized that a lot of our our ethos and 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 one of the reasons that I was one of the last uh, people in that in that run was because we we shared a lot of the same same passions and ideas, albeit mine were a little less seasoned and a little less uh, elegant at the time. And from there, literally the next day, I got phone calls from from everyone, from literally everyone. And it was like, stage here, stage there, stage here, stage there. It was a crazy blitz of, man, I've, I'm getting asked to the prom quite a bit here. This is nuts. The last place that I thought I would want to work or the last city that I thought I would want to live, I had committed to it early. Uh, and it was Papa's Brothers Steakhouse in Houston, Texas. Grand award-winning program, 30 years of, of service and one of the best one of the best institutions on on the planet, and I, it doesn't have any Michelin stars. And I, <clears throat> I wasn't sure if I wanted to do another steakhouse, but I I went in the night before incognito and sat at the counter in the main dining room, kind of the chef's counter, seeing all the action. And these guys are unbelievable. Uh, I think they had like six hundred something on the books. I waited an hour in the bar just for this table. My interview was early the next morning, so I was like, man, I'm cooked. I'm toast. But I was completely inspired and invigorated by how much teamwork, how amazing uh, the culinary team was just watching them do their thing, perfectly executing 600 plus dishes right in front of my very eyes. And what I was watching and listening to was a gentleman named Steve McDonald, who's still the wine director there today, uh, and some other uh, amazing, uh, talented sommeliers. 
some of them still work there today, but one gentleman in, in particular, Mark Griff, was, was selling a bottle of 1959 Chateau Latour right behind me. And the next guest, he was talking about a, a $95 to $120 Malbec. And the next guest was intrigued by uh, early 90s Burgundy. And I was looking at this massive wine list, 220 something pages, and just watching them all walk around like calm, cool, collected talking about all this crazy, crazy wine that you, you really don't get to see every day. And I ordered a, a half bottle um, of, I want to say it was a, a Ramonet St. Alban, uh, but it was in my wheelhouse of affordability at the time. And just kind of watched it all happen. And they figured it out pretty quickly that, that I was no longer incognito. Uh, I think I was just in, in the moment watching everything move. So they started splashing me with some things. And then Steve and the wine director invited me to, uh, to David Keck's fabulous bar, uh, Camerata, which he's now gone on and done other amazing things. But uh, I was like uh, an accidental mini recruiting uh, event. And the gentleman who had taken me on that trip to France, David Smith, uh, who runs Classified Wines in, in, in Texas, just so happened to be there tasting a bunch of the Burgundies that uh, enjoyed on that trip so many years before. And it just kind of felt like the right place, right time. So I, I interviewed, I interviewed well, I wanted the job. Uh, they gave me kind of the, the, the 50 cent or nickel tour of all of the ins and outs of Papa's. And on my way home, I got a phone call from a friend who was like, take the fucking job. Don't be an idiot. And I was like, okay, let me think about it. He goes, nothing to think about. He's like, this is an incredible opportunity for you. You're, you're the right fit for the job. He's like, it'll be an amazing learning opportunity. You're never going to see wine move like this again. So go get it. So I took literally 24 hours. I called back, accepted the job. Before I knew it, all my stuff was packed up, ready to rock and roll. I found this little tiny, very tiny, humble apartment. It was, <laughs> I think I had some Ikea stuff. Everything was rolled out. My folks came down with me. And that was that. I worked there for, for a couple of years. They treated me like a family member, but I learned so much about not only myself and what I was capable of doing in, in that restaurant environment, <clears throat> um, but, but what I was able to do as, as far as an inspiring and what I was inspired by. And every night, I, I often joke about, about this with some of my team here that you know when you work five days a week at, at a high level, it's kind of like being on a, a professional sports team. You got to take care of you. You got to take care of your body. You got to take care of your mind. And you got you to work, work hard on all of the things perfecting your craft. And they gave me the opportunity, the tools and the budget to, to not only help my team, myself, uh, but also the younger generation, the next round of, of sommeliers. And they always wanted to like to promote from within. I was one of the rare hires from, from outside at the time. And so we, we started this educational program there that, that I still use some of those, those materials to this day uh, to explain uh, the ins and outs of, of more difficult regions in the world of wine. Jump back just a little bit. So when you're at uh, the Paji house, like you mentioned, you get promoted to kind of beverage director. You wind up taking the wine list. That's kind of this limited thing into this high profile, like recognized wine program. Was that simply just going through what they already had and kind of, I don't want to say eliminating the duplicates, but you know, most of the, the list was big, bold red. So you kind of pared that down and expanded it to all these other flavors and, and stuff that you could get from kind of Napa or, you know, regions that people would kind of recognize. Was that kind of the approach? Really the approach there was like, let's take some of the bigger names and instead of charging an insane amount, let's get the wine on the table. When I walked in, there was like 
I don't want to hammer any, any skews, but there was 48 bottles in a, in a very tiny space. I mean, mind you, we were, we were not wealthy on space in any stretch of the imagination for wine storage. So things needed to move. And so instead of it being, you know, 185 bucks for a bottle that's recognizable, I took a different approach, asked for forgiveness more than permission, but uh, started kind of a 50% cost of goods on higher end wines, which in the restaurant industry, the margins are obviously you know, super tiny and tight. And, and so they were like, all right, we'll give it a try. So instead of like just getting rid of them, I wanted to promote a wine culture. And I thought that this would be a great way to do it. For happy hours, we would do, we would do half off on glasses or a couple bucks off on glasses. But I would also promote, you know, if you want to drink this delicious wine, nonetheless, instead of it being 185 bucks, it'll be 99 bucks. There was a little bit of pushback here and there. Uh, but once, once they saw, I, I guess what I was doing, I was not trying to like fire sale these items. I was really trying to get a wine culture started. And so in doing that needed to, to free up some cash. So we had 48 bottles of this. We had 60 bottles of that. We had just too much. And so I started to put them on by the glass as well. I wanted people to taste them, people to try them. I also wanted to see how these wines would perform, you know, a day or two open with a little, with a little argon gas over the top of them. This is in the times of, uh, of the Motorola razor. Uh, so the Coravin wasn't a thing yet. You had the, uh, Valley Preserve uh, spray to go into the into the glasses. This was like one of the first opportunities where I I, I have moleskin journals like crazy. I, I keep them, but I I took a lot of notes. I looked at the wine lists. I looked at wine lists that I was inspired by the French Laundry at the time. Danielle's wine program in in New York City was incredible, uh, and I had gotten the opportunity to dine there, and I was just blown away. I think I spent all the money I had uh, to eat at Danielle, uh, and it was absolutely worth it. And this is like 2008. I started to think, I'm like, you know, we only have like three or four skews of Chablis and they're, they're okay. They're fine. Like, how can I dig deeper into, into Chablis? And I, I think one of the first, one of the first big changes was we started a little tiny, a little tiny fund with sales where I was like, why don't we take one and a half to 3% of, of wine sales uh, and put that in a little tiny fund. So when the time comes and an allocation comes by, we can say yes. And it doesn't hurt so bad because we're a tiny restaurant. We're relatively new. We're in the red a little bit. And so we started to do that. And a lot of that revenue was, was made possible by Happy Hour and some of the bigger name. So we started to really take a look at it. And I started to focus in on like we have this, it was kind of an L-shaped restaurant. There were two rooms in particular uh, that were perfect for certain size wine dinners. So for me to be able to say yes a lot, I started to to look into doing wine dinners and not like we're going to have this big name producer from so-and-so come in and it's going to be X amount of dollars. I wanted them to be more approachable. The first big wine dinner I did was with John Louis Chauve and, and Richard Betts. And I was more nervous than you could possibly imagine. Um, but it was the Betts and Scholl label at the time. And he was making Hermitage Blanc and Hermitage Rouge. John Louis Chauve's wife, Erin, uh, is from Austin. So that connect was just kind of a, a happy accident. And the anchor of the meal was, was obviously Richard's uh, Hermitage. It was uh, from some of uh, the selection fruit that John Louis had and John Louis Chauve. And it was a big hit. I think we did like 28 covers and, and it was done in kind of a communal dining sense, which was something that we didn't do. So we were learning as, as, as we went uh, and that became a hit. Um, but it also became a way for me to organically build the program. So all of a sudden, you know, I bought a case of each of these wines. We used half of it for the wine dinner, plus or minus. And then I had, you know, six bottles or so left over, depending on the skew. And we noticed that the, like Monday and Tuesday nights were a little bit on the slower side in Austin. We had really great sales, but there wasn't a lot of volume. 
And so we started doing these, uh, these gentle versions of a, of a winemaker dinner, but we would just pair wines from around the world uh, at, at a really reasonable price. At the time, I think, it, I mean, it was stealing. It was like a hundred bucks for, uh, for a five course meal with tastings. And, <laughs> it was, and they, you know, it was a, a really great way for me to not at this point, not just get, get rid of product, but bring product in intentionally and start playing around, around the world. And then we bumped it up to like, okay, people are into it. Let's try two options of, of this pairing uh, with more of like a fresh and younger vintage thing. And then like a, a a back vintage thing. And I wasn't reinventing any wheels that hadn't been invented. Pairings have been happening for a long time. But in Austin at the time, that was not commonplace. You couldn't, you weren't going to restaurants and be like, I will do this seven course tasting menu. And then like, that just wasn't, at the time was, there was steakhouse culture. And there was a couple of, of, of diamonds in that, in that steakhouse rough that were a little bit more progressive in doing those things. But it was a really great way for me to organically build that program and find holes and say like, oh man, we don't have any, I don't really have shit for german riesling or, or austrian gruner Veltliners, and at the time i'm i'm studying for exams so i did place a couple of classic items also on the buy the glass and happy hour list just so that we could everybody on the team could try a benchmark producer of of gruner of chablis of california chardonnay and all kinds of different things in between and so that also started to to help us and unbeknownst to me i'm still throwing darts in the dark on how to manage a wine program at this point in time and may still be, who knows? This led into a, a really cool opportunity to where unknowingly was buying wines for that were helping us with, with allocations. And so one of the first big allocations that came through was Romani Conti. And I got a blessing to, to take that on. That was huge uh, for the restaurant. And then the second one, I didn't realize I had to, to buy them all at once was Ghislaine Bartode. Uh, and it was all of the premier crews that she makes from Chambon Musini. And they they helped to really put us on the map. But I swear, I thought I was going to get fired that day. There was 12 cases of premium burgundy that showed up. And I was like, oh, my God. So as I ask for forgiveness, not permission so much, I didn't realize that I took them all at, at one swing when I said yes. So that was a little bit of a, a white knuckle ride there. But unbeknownst to me, I put those wines on this pairing dinner for for a group of people uh, i didn't have a clue that that was uh food and wine magazine i didn't know we weren't in a position it was open table that we were using and we weren't in a position to you know google people coming in and there was this really amazing uh duck dish that that shane was kind of known for it was a duck course with this kind of ponzu and miso glaze a little mini uh quinoa salad and some truffles it was just bonkers delicious um, and it had some uh, some orange zest to it, whatever. I, I put that with uh, Ghislaine Bartode, uh, Le Charme, 2007, Chambol Musini Premier Crew. And we were written about in Food and Wine. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I got a phone call from Food and Wine saying that I had been selected as one of the, the best new sommeliers in the country. And I was like, what? The day-to-day, -day, I worked a lot uh, at this restaurant. It was like the little the, the little restaurant that could. I did multiple things, much more than just popping popping corks at the time. So it, I was completely taken aback. I'd never had headshots taken of me before. I had to ask a friend of mine who was a photographer uh, to come by and do it. They needed him quick and uh, slowly but surely. That article came out um, and it was like someone someone just left the, the fire hose running. People were marching up the stairs of this 200-year-old building to come and check it out. At the time... Uh, we'll go back into the beginning of the conversation, parts of Austin and, and, and North Austin and, and that area 
uh, Monica's, it was a little bit ahead of its time. They had a similar ethos for sure. Podgy House, it, it was like it it hit at the right time where, where people from New York were starting to move to Austin, people from California and Colorado and a little bit more diversity in, in restaurants. And they were coming in in droves and all of those things that I thought I was going to get fired for buying started to fly off the shelves and I had to figure out how to get more and we changed our budget and I had to hire a, another sommelier, uh, Lauren Holbrook, who I still adore and love to this very day. She's amazing. Her youngest son essentially grew up in the restaurant. <laughs> they would ride their bikes there every day and Vincenzo was learning as she was studying for exams as well. Um, and he would be like, you need to get more Bawolo on the on the menu. You need to get more Burgundy on the menu. He's a little five-year-old kid. And I'm like, okay, you got it, man. But it, it just really blossomed from there. Uh, we were able to hire some more uh, talented people and before we knew it, you know, we went from doing like 25 to 30 covers on a, on a relatively busy night to doing like 70 to 150 to, to 200. And it was, became a destination, not just for wine, but for food. Uh, and the whole intention in, in the early going of that restaurant and then me taking over, kind of feeling my way through the dark really hit. Uh, and, and the wine became, you know, the, the appropriate condiment for, uh, for the cuisine at just the right time. Uh, and we, we rode that wave for, for, for really the rest of, the, of my time there. That was relatively early on uh, when, that, when that article came out. It was really one of those blessings where it's like, you yeah, know, this is so, such an honor. I'm like blown away that I'm included in, in this. I think uh, if I can remember back, there's Chris Gavier, who's, uh, who him and his wife also both MSs uh, own Ungrafted in San Francisco. And they're, they're, they've kind of like taken the stuffiness out of wine that uh the wine list is in trapper keeper notebooks and uh it's just a, it's a fun place and kind of takes the stuffiness and the and the arrogance out of wine which is amazing but there was all these amazing names all these amazing people on this and and then me and so i think really for the first time at that point in my career i realized that like wow i am i am doing something that i i can you know truly stand up and be proud of um but it, it was by no means uh you know a a, a singular effort it was I had an awesome group of people that were super supportive of what we were trying to do. And they were learning with me as I was learning to build something and having that support and not being fired for ordering 10 cases of Gisland Barto uh, Premier Cruise from 07 was, was a real treat. A couple of years later, you wind up passing the advanced exam. I think uh, July 2014, you're one of 13 people that pass. Which of the three parts was the most challenging for you? taking that and was that like your first time taking it or was it second time i fell short the first time so as i was opening the restaurant or trying to open a, a restaurant concept in austin i was also moonlighting at, at a friend's bar called the red room lounge uh access to some really cool wines but i was also studying like crazy with this group uh nathan prater scott oda bill elsey and then uh, we had a lot of uh of other people that would come into the tasting group and it was a it was it was like a machine um, but theory was my Achilles heel. And it wasn't that I didn't know the information. It was that I didn't know how to use the information so well. So the first time I took the exam, I did swimmingly in the two categories that I should do swimmingly in, uh, which was service and, and tasting. Knew that I nailed it on tasting when I walked out of the room. Uh, and we had worked really hard on that. Service we practiced uh, quite a bit as well. And theory, we we went at it pretty hardcore. But I'm not sure if I, in that first round, if I was just like, gun shy or or what but i felt for the first time in a long time serious test anxiety when i took the the exam for the first time i got my butt kicked in theory and i realized like all of my prep work was really esoteric 
and kind of minutia street credit information that I was diving into as opposed to building a really good foundation. So that news was obviously, it was a bummer, it's heartbreaking. It, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time and a lot of money, mostly personal to, to take one of those exams. This one was in Florida. And at the time, this was the advanced course and the advanced exam were the same thing. So you did three and a half days of, of coursework and then you got up and you went to your theory exam on the third and a half day. So after lunch, one more breakout tasting session, then go take a theory exam. And it was a marathon of a week and then service and tasting and then results. And so that's a lot like to unpack when you don't get across the finish line. Obviously, super pumped for all of my pals who, who passed that exam. And it was a pretty big passing class. I was like, man, this was the year to do it, I guess. It was like 20 out of 70. And so I was bummed. I got the feedback. I kind of took it in the chin. And I took about a week before thinking about like what, what was going to be the next step. Not so much to, to like waller in any form of self-pity. It's an exam and it happens, right? But um, it was more like, I need to clear my head. I want to process the information. I want to, I want to, I want to congratulate myself on the, on all the shit that I did. That was correct. I worked hard. I got up early. I did, I put in work. Where can I put in, where can I take all of this amazing information, all of these esoteric note cards, and where can I peel those back a little bit and build a really, really good foundation for the next round. And in that process, um, I found that I could shorthand some of my, some of my note cards. Some of them were like, name the this, this, and this. And it was like a paragraph on the back of this note card. And there's no way that I'm going to retain all that information. And I also had some advice from some friends that was like, take it in, you know, you're an active guy, you're used to walking the floor, you're used to doing all these, these things in theory, sitting down for you for two and a half hours is definitely going to be a challenge. That's going to be your first challenge. Theory being such a such a monster, uh, but also changing my mindset that it was like a monster as opposed to it was the gateway to be a better taster and it was a gateway to be a better floor sommelier and in service. Uh, and so I pared it down and I started to do these 15-minute workouts with studying. So that way I would do I would do 15 minutes and I would lock in and focus in on a specific subject and I'd have it mapped out, only that subject. The next card was another 15 minutes. But in between that, I would get my stretch on or I would, you know, put change the record or, or something, something to where I could get up and, and use, for lack of a better term, ADHD to, to a benefit. The next year, there was a group of us that were all over the country. And, and this is where like, what was it called even? Like the very first version of Zoom, I can't even remember what it's called at this point, but we were using that in FaceTime uh, to study and having this other perspectives and other people kind of holding you accountable and making sure that your questions are vetted and, uh, and correct and not so esoteric and really more uh, to get to the next round and, and really master a subject was super duper helpful and kind of leaving no stone unturned in those building blocks allowed me to build a, a much bigger, sturdier house of, of at the ready knowledge. Now at that time also, uh, the other thing uh, was I had moved on to Houston, Texas, and I was working with the Pappas program and that that was kind of the secret sauce. So it was like using all that theoretical knowledge that I was working so hard on and turning it into the Jedi training live uh, on the floor every night at, at Papa's five to six days a week, depending. Um, at that point in time, I never turned down an extra shift at the steakhouse. So it was a uh, theory was certainly the, the grand challenge. So when you do pass the advanced how soon does your mentality shift to the MS? Is it right away? Is it, I'm going to take a break a couple of weeks before I even think about that? Like how soon do you start like studying and mentally preparing for that last hurdle? 
Very, very good question. I think I rochambeaued with that in my in my head for for the entire weekend. I gave myself a couple of days to to relax and not think about wine. I felt like I really enjoyed the taste of champagne for the first time in a long time after I passed that exam. Uh, went to some good dinners, took just a, a day really of, of mental health. I went and played some basketball with some friends. And my roommate at the time, uh, one of them passed with me uh, and the other was studying for the, for the MS. We took it as there was, I think, seven months before, maybe eight months before the MS exam was starting. So we took it as a as a grand challenge, at least like if if my number is called, I hope I'm ready and I'll I'll say yay. And so it was almost immediate uh, back at it. And the reason that I say like almost immediate at the time I was working at Papa's, Stephen McDonald, the wine director, was was studying, asking each other theory questions while polishing glassware and and getting that work in, you know, getting it in where you could fit it in. We had really great, like I said earlier, educational budget and and also educational time. Uh, we met every week at the restaurant and 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 everybody presented something different. It was kind of an opportunity to really take that momentum and crank it. Now, I will, I will say that the advanced is hard. It's, you know, it's a, it's a huge jump from, from one to two. It's a bigger jump from two to three. And I think that goes for anything in any, whether it's CMS or, or WSET or, or what have you, whichever avenue you choose, it's a big jump each time. The jump from certified to advanced, the knowledge is, is so, it's so crazy. You go from from tasting, you know, two to four wines to, to six wines. You, you go to, to needing to know the Grand Cru's of Burgundy, north to south, to needing to know, you know, which producer makes this, uh, who was making that and what vintage, blah, 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 blah. So we use that as kind of the, the boomerang or, or the wind in the sail to continue. And the switches from written to, to verbal uh, at the MS exam. So that's really like training a whole new set of muscles. It's one thing to be like, okay, I know this, I can write this down. Like this, I've written this card 50 times. I know this answer. Keeping the information locked up here to be able to, to get it out eloquently is a, is a totally different challenge. I was attacking that in a way that I thought I was going to crush and I got my ass kicked on the first MS try. Uh, I mean, like it, at one point in time, I was just like, what, you guys just want me to go or what's going on? Like, dude, <laughs> should I get up? And there was one question in particular, like, where is the Bekaa Valley? And I was like, thank you. Uh, it's in Lebanon. You know, like, great. Thank you so much. So like, name one producer is like Chateau Moussar. Thanks. I got, I got one. I got one on the board for sure. And then, you know, I started to feel a little bit more comfortable, but being in that, in that room and in that chair, you have two, two MSs, people that you look up to generally asking you questions from, from all over the world. And you have a, a very limited time to answer it. Nothing's unfair at that exam. That's the, that's the hard part that you're playing mentally. Every question is super gettable. Like it's more of the internal mental battle. Like, fuck, I answered that wrong. Why didn't I know that? And then, you know, you got to dust that one off and go to the next question. Um, but once you answer, you can't go back and change it. That's the challenge among many challenges. It's a, you know, 50, 55 minute to an hour exam and your, your time between questions. And some of them are, are worded in a way that you might not have thought about them before, as opposed to like a Jeopardy type question. You know, it's some of them are, are just a little trickier. So I got my butt kicked on the first round and, and, and that, that has proven to be a, a hard part for me is, is theory at the MS exam or at that level for sure. So where are you at now with your exam journey? You still doing it or have you accepted peace that the advanced level is where you're comfortable being at or? Such a great question. As far as exams go, it's like, uh, I would want to finish what I started. 
Uh, my partner, Morgan, she's brilliant. She's uh, like 20 days away from taking her her theory exam. I have taken the break that I, I needed from, from the exams and I'll slowly but surely get back into the saddle of, of that type of study. Uh, but right now, not in any myopic fashion, uh, you know, my main responsibility is to to usher my team into their goals and and usher them into success. So by no means am I am I hanging up my spurs, but I've taken the time away that I think that I needed during COVID uh, seasons one and two. Obviously, those exams were so different, and it seemed a little less important to me, if that makes any sense. Um, it seemed like at this point in time. I don't know if I necessarily wanted it anymore or needed it anymore. And I still don't know. I don't have a, the perfect answer for you, but I, I will certainly uh, eventually give that another college try. So you're working in Austin, Houston, you know, over the course of the years, and I think even maybe pop up into Chicago for a little bit. How did you wind up out in California, though? Like what led to you leaving Texas the Midwest behind going West Coast. My partner, Morgan, she's brilliant. She's amazing. She moved down to Houston on, on kind of a whim uh, with me. And she worked also at, at Papa's and was offered a position as the head sommelier at Gary Danko uh, under uh, Jeremiah Morehouse, who's a, uh, an excellent dude and a, and a master sommelier, a brilliant wine guy. Uh, Gary Danko is a, a staple. It's an institution. They, they had a, a Michelin star forever grand award list and, and the list is just bonkers. And so we came out here and she was like, I want to, I want to make this happen. I want to make this move. And I was like, you, you did it for me. It's the least I can do. Let's do it. I've always wanted to, to, to live in San Francisco. just never thought that I could do it. And I reached out to a couple of places uh, uh, and some friends that, that, you know, I'd made along the way. Uh, the one person who got back to me quickly was Matt Gully uh, at Lazy Bear. And we, I spent the weekend staging there and I staged at a couple of other restaurants, but Lazy Bear was something that I, that I had never done anything quite like it before. It was a two mission star restaurant. And at the time, pre-COVID was a communal dining experience. So, so 42 people at once and performing all of the finer detailed duties of, of Michelin world dining, but also it was so much fun. I, we got back, I was working at the Post Oak Hotel, Keith Goldston and a and a treasure trove of amazing sommeliers there. And I came back and Morgan had accepted the job. I let them know, I uh, wasn't hundred percent sure. And then came back out to Lazy Bear and did another weekend and accepted the job. And then it all happened very quickly. We packed up the car, we sold plenty of stuff. We started over our one dog at the time. Now we have two, uh, Brunello hopped in the back and we, we cruised across country to San Francisco. And it was, it felt like, like a month, boom, boom, boom. We were sharing a house with, with a couple of roommates, but it was a four story townhouse in Houston that had plenty of space. Everybody basically had their, their own floor. We didn't want to see each other. We didn't necessarily have to, to this uh, 507 square foot nook in, uh, in San Francisco along Golden Gate Park. It was a lot of fun. Morgan excelled at, at, at her role in, at Gary Danko. And in that time passed her advanced exam uh, and her ascension has been insane. She's beyond smart, but that position at Lazy Bear led to single thread, which I left out earlier on. I had had my eye on since before they opened. Um, and I was like, man, what a cool place. But that's how we got out, out to California was, uh, was Morgan. She's the brains of the operation. Uh, so uh, obviously, I was grateful to make the move and, and support her. She supported me while I was in Houston. Why was single thread on your radar? You spent a good chunk of, I think, 2019 trying to get your foot in the door there, eventually kind of finally do. So what was it about 
that restaurant that just gravitated you towards it. And like, that was a place you had to work. I used to be part of Texom every year. They would always have these amazing books and bags of swag and all kinds of cool stuff uh, that were for the, for the volunteers and for the people helping lead the conference. And one of them was uh, um, uh, art culinary. And I love, I love those books. I always have kind of getting into the story. And uh, I had set my alarm uh, for a really early morning jaunt and um, I didn't realize that I, I must've been dog tired, but I set it for four 30 instead of six 30. Uh, so I woke up at four 30, didn't really look. I just heard the alarm popped up, hit an espresso, had another one. And I looked at the alarm clock after the shower and I was like, Oh, it's like that scene in oceans 12. We're like, Oh, that's mean. Um, and I was like, damn it. And so I'm like, I'm wired. I'm up. I'm answering some emails and, and on the, on the desk, and this is like 2016, right at the beginning of them opening, uh, them, us, single thread opening. Um, I'm reading this, this art culinaire, uh, and it's all about single thread and the ethos and Kyle and Katina and, and the teammates and the farm. And this, this, it, it just seemed like such a magical, majestic place. Um, I'm like, man, if ever there's an opportunity, I would love to work at this place. At least go check it out. Um, so that year, uh, I sent a, an email uh, with my resume and I was like, I would love to at least observe service or something like, let me, let me in. Um, and if you remember earlier at Sullivan's, I, I have, I have uh, some serious determination. So um, I, I can wait, uh, I can wait and annoy you longer than you can. Um, and it just so turned out I was, I was at the gym and Morgan and I were, had been talking about, uh, it was maybe time to, to move away from the city and think about, you know, something else. Uh, San Francisco is obviously an, an extremely expensive place to live. Um, and I was like, well, maybe we can save some money, still commute to and fro the city, but let's, let's think about an exit strategy from, from big cities. We've done them, we've done it. Um, and I was like, my first choice would be, would be to go to single thread and we're at the gym, uh, I'm working out. She comes up to me. She goes, the job just posted at single thread. You should, you should fill out. And I, I had my resume on my phone, filled out the application. And as I'm at the gym, I got a phone call. Uh, and it was from uh, a gentleman named Rusty Ristello, who was a former assistant wine director at 11 Madison park. Um, and him and I have been, been friends for a long time through the, uh, through the court of masters, but, but beyond that um, kind of a, a, a mutual a mutual level of friendship and, and respect uh, from a distance. And anytime we would get together, share ideas and, uh, uh, and just, you know, get to know one another better. And I get this phone call um, and I'm like, why is Andrew calling me? Um, and I, I, I knew him as, as Andrew at the time. And he had kind of changed his moniker to, to a childhood nickname, Rusty. Um, and uh, <laughs> he's like, funny thing about that. I, I go by Rusty now. And he's like, I'd love to set you up for a stage. And I just so happen to have uh, March 14th of 2020 off from Lazy Bear. And he was like, have you told Lazy Bear that you're looking? And I was like, no, I just, you know, I just filled this out. Um, but I'm in, I'll be there. You know, what do I wear? Um, and that morning I, I got here. Um, at the time they were still doing uh, on the weekends uh, for the busy, for the higher season, a lunch service. So I got here uh, as lunch was kind of wrapping up as they were setting up for for dinner service. And it was just amazing. Everybody welcomed me here with open arms. And I saw a lot of people that I've seen over the course of, of the years traveling around or staging or, or dining at, at restaurants in, in this kitchen. Um, and I staged, uh, 
Rusty was like, I would have uh, hired you over the phone, but I, you know, I truly wanted you to see it if you could see yourself here and if this is something that you want to do. And I obviously accepted the position without talking to uh, my friends at Lazy Bear with full intent on, on letting them know Monday when I walked in the building, which was March 16th, 2020, uh, and the announcement of the world shutting down uh, happened. And I was like, of course, I get you know, uh, my dream job offer and uh, it's, that might be it for restaurants you know, forever. And I think I don't think I'm the only person who thought that way at the time. I think that, you know, everybody was like, what do we do? Right. Um, so they still offered me the job here, which I was like, what? Um, but I, at the same time, I was still working and very loyal to, to Lazy Bear. And I've said it privately. I'll say it publicly. Uh, at the time, at Lazy Bear, uh, David Barzley was committed to um, the chef and owner um, was committed to keeping everybody employed. Uh, and it was like the first level of of the word that we've all heard so many times is pivot uh and the amount of creative collaborative pivots there um kind of held me to to stay with with lazy bear they still offered me the job here at single thread but it was in a very limited capacity and they weren't sure what direction it was going to go i let lazy bear know that you know that was a a thing and a move uh, and they were super supportive uh, but i was commuting at the time from uh morgan and i had decided just before the pandemic that we were going to move to, uh, to Petaluma, uh, in, uh, in the North Bay. And so we did. And so I was commuting to the city for lazy bear and not really knowing what it was going to be. It was kind of a, a takeout thing, a dinner kit thing, a wine kit thing. Uh, you know, like we were, we're all trying to tr- figure that out and navigate the waters. And like, do we wear gloves? Is it a mask thing? Like what's going on? And there was all that information out there. Um, slowly, but surely, um, single thread started to do their, their dance and their pivot. Um, and on August 1st of 2020, I started, but I, I had only had two days in the actual restaurant, um, to try to like capture the ethos and and understand the mission and, and all of that. We, I was brought on to, to help out at, uh, Kistler, which we did a, what was supposed to be a, a two month, uh, residency out at Trenton Roadhouse's property, outdoor dining, so we could still do our thing. We're still wearing masks, um, but I, I came on full time uh, in in August, uh, and we did that. And that ride lasted until almost December um, out at Kistler. <laughs> Slowly but surely, every day we would it, in the latter months it would get really, really cold out there. It's warm during the days, but the moment the sun goes down in in that part of wine country, it, it drops twenty to thirty degrees. Um, and, uh, that, that lasted until, uh, I guess late November. Uh, and then we, we went to come back to the restaurant, thought that we were able to open indoors and that, that was shut down. Uh, so we, we did this massive plie of a pivot, um, and created a, a hot pot experience out in our parking lot, um, in a tent. And if you walked by it, it would look like a circus tent from the outside, really, and truly like something out of Dumbo. Um, but when you walk in, uh, the team at Ken Folk uh, Design and, and Kyle and, and Katina and the amazing floral team trans, transcended uh, time, space, and reality uh, to this amazing Hokkaido forest uh, that was set up in, in for better or for worse, a, a, a tent um, in the parking lot. So uh, we did that for a few months. Really, we started off with that for two days and they shut that down. No dining of any kind. And we were able to pick that back up uh, until we eventually opened uh, back up into the restaurant, uh, which 
thinking about all of those things now is kind of crazy. Um, but really my first, my first experience in indoors, I'd already worked here for a year. Um, so kind of crazy, good things to those who wait, I guess. October last year, you wind up taking over as the wine director of the restaurant. When that happens, you know, you're obviously working in inside for 2021 and everything, but when you take over the wine program, because the year before it got a grand award, you become the wine director. How do you navigate that where it's, there's this award-winning wine program here. I'm now in charge of it, but you also want to put kind of your stamp on it. You know, you make some touches because you want to have your name on it, but you also have to kind of respect, like, we want to get that award back next year too as well. So how much stuff can you actually change? Like, how do you navigate that? Let me start with saying that, like, I'm standing obviously on the shoulders of, uh, of geniuses there. So the, the first arc of, of wine director was a gentleman named Evan Hufford. And he wrote a, a beautiful program and had, you know, a great team around him, obviously, and um, wrote a really great program. And it was, it was kind of the, again, that building block and foundation. And it was, it was like budding right on the edge of a grand award. And Rusty, who had worked at uh, 11 Madison Park, kind of came in as Evan, as Evan left uh, and took that and did exactly that, put his mark on it and uh, found, found some areas where we could build on, on, on Evan's purchases and, and Evan's vision uh, and kind of taking that first arc and building a second story. Uh, and what, what Rusty ended up doing uh, in hiring me, I was promoted to the head sommelier. So behind the scenes, I was learning uh, from him on the way that he wanted levers pulled and where, where this and that was going to be and, and where we were going to expand uh, in a certain area and what the focus uh, was going to be. But all the while, the ethos is, is still um, hellbent on on shining the light on on Sonoma producers and really trying to to, to tell that message as well uh, as the international world that inspires them. So in October when I took over, um, you know, there there's always irons and fires here. Uh, there's always something cool going on. There's always another another collaboration or another project. Um, so we kind of learned to to navigate um, about a million things at once. Um, and I make a joke that I can only do 502 things at a time. So um, with that. I'm I'm kind of slowly but surely being put into the to the deep end as he's handing off orders and then pairings are my responsibility and then events are my responsibility and then slowly but surely not only learning uh, the way that that Rusty does it um, but also able to kind of slowly but surely put my spin and my take and like hey man what about this for this dish and what about that for this dish and we can get a couple extra cases of this and this can last through this you know this season. Uh, and it's both good on the wine pairing and reserve pairing and fits those those cost parameters and, and quality parameters that we're looking for. And so when I had officially taken over, you know, unbeknownst to, to many, uh, but Rusty had had it all figured out uh, that that I, I had been kind of slowly but surely running running the program for for four to five months um, with just a little bit of, of of push over here or push over there or or, or Rusty was really great about asking me questions on why not like not like that's a dumb wine but be like why do you think that would work For, kind of forcing my hand to really think about uh the decisions i was making both financially and, and flavor profile wise wise for the program during that time i'm also you know in the in the culinary meetings and i'm on the phone in the farm meetings and and understanding that that like i am just one player in, in a really really big game of uh, seasonality. So we're all beholden to the farm and all of this jazz uh, that I'm sure that you've you've read about uh, with single thread. But as October came, 
we had to make some minute changes. The dish was coming on that like it, it's a beautiful dish, but it is a very difficult pairing. And it is one of the, one of the anchors of, of the savory portion of your dining experience. Uh, and I think the first big change that I made uh, was I brought uh, back vintage Biondi Santi on Brunello de Montalcino from the 2011 vintage to, to be the reserve pairing anchor. Uh, and I found an Italian counterpart for the wine pairing anchor from Ronchi de Ciala back vintage 2010, I think at the time, uh, to pair and like run alongside with this with this dish. And those were the first two big implemental changes. We never really poured uh, Italian wine that wasn't uh, uh, back vintage Barolo uh, or Barbaresco on the pairings. And it ended up being a hit and ended up working out. And it, it kind of gave me the confidence that that I needed to know that like, I, I can do this. I've, you know, I've been, I've been ushered and, and mentored and, and partnered up with some really great sommeliers my entire career. But a lot of times, uh, you know, until you, until you do it, until you throw, throw yourself into the deep end, you don't know what you can do. Uh, and so we continue to expand upon the regions that, that make the most sense, obviously in, in Burgundy and in California, Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, same for Burgundy and kind of developing those areas, but looking for uh, new and upcoming producers or producers that may be just starting a label. Um, so where I've certainly expanded the program is in uh, the Loire Valley uh, and, and kind of doubled down on, on Rhone varietals, not only from these hills, but also from, from the Rhone and, and really uh, taken a peek at uh, where we can have some fun in, in the realm of Grossgebex uh, wines from, from Germany. And they are a big part of, of our pairings. Uh, but with that organically kind of taking that recipe from long ago, uh, we can also help build the program, keep it interesting and keep it fresh. And then the biggest changes, I think, have, have taken what Rusty started with the sake portion of our, our program and, and really doubled and in some cases tripled down on that aspect and, and trying to really push the envelope. And, you know, we're in wine country. And so sometimes on a Sunday, if someone has a dinner reservation at four, they're wined out and we have the ability to put, you know, something fun in front of them that has nothing really to do with wine if, they, if they've reached their max the wine program like i think it's some numbers have been floated out there but you know 3400 wines 75 sakes across like a 150 page book or or maybe an ipad something like that how do you make that easier for a guest to navigate in this five to ten minute window after they're seated to make a decision even with all the experience on the floor all the sommeliers if you haven't been to a single thread when you walk in your first course is basically already laid out before you even sit down. You have this window, what do I want to drink? And it just can be just overwhelming. No matter how many times you've done it as a guest of a Michelin star restaurant or whatever. But how do you guys approach that? Where do you kind of steer them in a direction? Is it more of a Q&A back and forth? Try and get parameters from them? Like, what is your kind of style? 100%. I try to read read the air with our guests as, as to the best of my ability, you know, and I, I encourage that for the entirety of the SOM team as well. And, and they're all amazing. Most of them have been in, in certain aspects of the restaurant uh, as a captain. So they have that vantage point or as a, as a kitchen server or a back server. Once they meet, make it to, to the world of sommelier, nothing really changes about that. You're still going to be responsible for, for clearing plates and, and all that jazz. But like you said, uh, when the guests sit down, they're sitting down to to their first course, which is uh, anywhere between eight to eleven bites in front of them. 
Uh, and then we'll bombard you with a couple of more magical umami bombs uh, over the course of that. But you're sitting next to this thing that is really a, a snapshot of the moment in time that we're having at the farm and what's happening in the waters. And it's it's this really beautiful setting that truly never gets tired or never gets old for me, no matter what vantage point that I'm in. And one of the things that Single Thread does really well is we encourage uh, everyone gets at least a meal in the dining room every year. Everyone who works here, whether they, they work as a as a part-time farm employee to a, a, a full-time SOM or a full-time you know, line cook, whatever. And it's a really crazy transition because we're used to setting the table and making that happen. But the moment that you sit down and become a guest, you see how beautiful, how magical, and how, how taken aback you could be. So I always try to give the guests a moment after the captain has introduced all of the things and congratulated them on a celebration or, or what have you. Um, but it can be truly overwhelming for for a lot of different ways. So I try to key in and 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 watch that and read the air and what they're celebrating. You know, technological advancements are are awesome. So you have the opportunity to pre-select uh, a wine pairing, a reserve pairing, or a zero-proof pairing if you'd like. You also can add notes onto your reservation. Like, love to talk to the sommelier. Love to pre-plan some wines, which is great. And other people come in and and uh, they want to have a chat. And, and I think that's really the best way to approach it is have a conversation. By the time the sommelier gets there, uh, they've had their waters poured. They've had all of this magical stuff uh, explained. And so sometimes it's disarming with, with a little bit of humor or, or just a simple welcome. And I usually, we, we walk over with the wine program. Immediately that can be intimidating because it is a, it's a 160-page book and it's leather-bound with this really beautiful uh, stamp of, of our Negi Flower logo on it. When you open it up, uh, there's this beautiful map of, of the wine regions of California there. And the next page is the table of contents, and then we get right into it. And so, you know, in a general 50,000-foot flyover after we're having the conversation, I, I always, if they haven't pre-selected something, I always like to mention uh, the thing that we don't put on the, on the menu are the pairing options, which I'm happy to expound. A zero proof, uh, a wine pairing and a reserve pairing, all beginning with this course that's in front of you with something sparkling. And then they want more information from there. I will, I will gladly tell them. Those journeys have generally been chosen for you. Or if you'd like to choose your own journey, we have wines by the glass, half bottle, full bottle, sake, and beer available. And I'm happy to help navigate you through some some choices, whether that be by the glass, half bottle, or, or what have you. Or you can choose your own adventure entirely. And I can turn this big, beautiful leather-bound book into the Cliff Notes version. It's up to you. And a lot of people by that point in time, uh, believe it or not, are super trustworthy. They give give us a budget, tell me what they like. And sometimes we take it and we run with it. Other times we'll run everything completely by them. And sometimes if they pre-selected a wine pairing, they're like, we don't want to do a course for course thing. Take that budget and go nuts and, and have a good time. Here's what we'd love to see. We want to do you know, something from Burgundy and something from, uh, from California is kind of a side-by-side, -side, whether that be white or red. The menu itself uh, and our pairings kind of lean into uh, white wine in the first few rounds. The last two courses are red wine oriented and it's a, uh, you know, kind of a beautiful thing. But really trying to disarm a guest after all that information is passed. And we've got some tricks up our, our sleeve to make sure that that transition can be easy. Whether they, you know, they sat in traffic on the way up here and, and, or maybe got in an argument about uh, being late or whatever, you know, we want to make sure that when they sit in that chair that, that this is it, We're, you're in our home now. And from here on out, if you don't want to think, you don't have to. Uh, and if you do want to take a look, you absolutely can. But we don't do the iPad program. We did that during during COVID. We also sent people a link on their phone, but everybody gets a link to uh, to the wine program, which is updated literally a la minute every day. 
and the power of technology. So they get a link. So some people have spent some time with it. Others, you know, if they don't know and that list is intimidating, it's kind of one of those things where I'm like, give me, give me a small budget or let me, let me pour something for you real quick to see if you like it for science and, and, and your enjoyment. You can hang on to it if you don't like it and see if, if you can science it with a course throughout the evening. <laughs> like, I just want, I want you to have a great time. That's it. I think we present that really well from my whole, my whole sommelier squad uh, and beyond. The, the captains and the back servers are also really well versed in, in what we're offering. And that's, you know, that's the kind of beauty of, of team effort that, that helps the disarming of an intimidating program. Uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things, it's like at Papa's when we would drop that wine list off, people would look and be like, whoa, uh-uh. And here sometimes that's the same thing. And so gaining some trust, I'm not, I'm not trying to steal somebody's wallet. I want, I want them to, to be comfortable with what they're getting, maybe try something cool, fun, and unique and, uh, uh, and have the best time that they possibly can while they're here. So for you being a sommelier, what's the most fun part about it? You know, what part gives you the most enjoyment? There's a couple things with that. One, I think that my answer, if you asked me throughout the, the arcs of my career, would have changed immensely. The thing that I get the most pleasure and joy uh, out of is kind of a two-part. One, I love to watch my teammates grow and have have a uh, an aha moment. Like, I know I nailed it. That, that table will never forget the experience that they had tonight. I love watching that happen. Uh, and personal and professional growth with, with my teammates. But I also love to be part of, of, of a night where someone hasn't, hasn't necessarily tried something before. And, and we overhear that and we kind of secretly make that happen or just appear in front of them. We thought that you might really enjoy this round. And those are the moments where someone's like, how did you guys do that? And it's not a magic trick to where like, look at us, look what we did. It's the fact that when you work in restaurants long enough, you, you have these superhuman ear powers that you can hear things happening. Uh, three tables away. And when you hear that, like, wow, I've never had Chateau de Ken before. And like, let me, let me make this be your first time to enjoy that. Like, what is it to us? We're, we're so happy to pour a little splash of that for you. You know, that it's make your day, make, make, make the evening unforgettable in any way that we can. And I think when we, when we nail that aspect of hospitality and, and dining, I think that's the thing that I, I am over the moon about when someone, when someone, truly feels like they're a part of our, our home and, and part of the family by the time that they're done dining with us and can't wait to come back and do it again. I think that's where it all starts, stops, and, and, and ends for me. We've talked to a bunch of different sommeliers across different levels and everything, wine directors, beverage directors. Everybody has this one region that pulled them in. That's their favorite region for whatever. They just gravitate towards it. So what's yours? What's your region or, or style of wine? It's, that's a, such a hard, a hard question because uh, you know I'm a curious, a curious George, and I, I really love so many aspects about so many regions. But you know, you heard me talk about it a little earlier. I felt like a kid in a candy store in Burgundy, and that is something that I always treat myself to, um, whether that be you know reading about something or or tasting it. That's a region that that has always fascinated me. It's just just absolutely fascinating. Obviously, it's a uh, some of them can be yours for the price of a, a, a used BMW or a new Kia. And those are kind of out of my wheelhouse. But I, I really think that, you know, the, the main reason that it has drawn me in is that it's this little tiny sliver of, of perfection in, uh, in, in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And it's perfect because it's imperfect. Uh, it's made by imperfect people with imperfect weather and a grape, two grapes that are finicky and can be 
an absolute nightmare to to harvest in every year, no matter big or small. Uh, a story is told about the time and place uh, and the people making it, or, or at least trying to harness that win. Uh, and since you know, since I've taken one dive, I've taken a thousand. But every time that I read about the region, I'm just I'm, I'm truly taken aback, and 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 it is it is a place that fascinates me. Certainly, if I was a death row meal, I would I would have a hard time choosing uh, whether it be red or white Burgundy. But Burgundy for sure is uh, is is a place of of complete captivation for me. Is there a region that you're excited to focus on sometime in the near future? Something that maybe when you're going through your studying touched on it, obviously, but like maybe you didn't fully explore it as much as you did some other regions, and you might go back to it. Right now. Uh, there's this really amazing uh, moment happening in Australia, and maybe that moment is just now coming across my desk in a way that I'm ready to receive it. But in you know in the early parts of my career, I associated uh, Australia with really big and inky wines, uh, specifically in places like like Victoria and other other kind of coastal regions in in Australia. There are some truly phenomenal wines being made. Uh, that I may have not not purposely overlooked, but just maybe I wasn't ready to 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 enjoy those uh, at the time. And I would say the same thing for for places like Chile and Argentina. I've had some earth shatteringly cool wines from from both countries that I, I was not necessarily ready to take the plunge in, uh, being more of a berg hound and holding it to a, a standard that may may not be fair or may not be right. And I would say the same thing about. Uh, about California, I think uh, as an American learning about wine, California was like my first my first stop. It was the first thing that I could afford and and all that. But there are some things happening in our region in in Sonoma, uh, in Napa, in in Mendocino, and and kind of surrounding off the beaten path areas and, and, uh, in the Central Coast and Santa Barbara and Santa Rita, Santa Cruz that are so exciting uh, and really winemakers uh, and and farmers that are finding their stride with grape varieties that that may not have been at the forefront of of people's wants years ago i.e Syrah I've been championing Riesling and, and Syrah since I started in this business and and now when I hear people like oh Syrah I'll take a let's take a bottle of that I'm like what this is everything some of the new world wine regions that are emerging South Africa's got some some really cool cool wines that I think over the next five to ten years that there's there's going to be a little bit of a of a shift, obviously, you know, prices in Bordeaux and, and Burgundy and Champagne get so high, but the elevation of producers making Method Champenois sparklings in, in even our backyard here in Sonoma are, are truly incredible. Blind tasting some of the producers uh, in, in the region, it's like, that's that's as good, if, if not better than some of the other big dogs on where it all started. So there's these emerging places, you know, around the world, but also a little bit more comfort and and knowledge and and something more to draw on than maybe in years past from from California or from Argentina and Chile where where it's not just you know the big the big names and the and the inky stuff coming through and those are great they work out great for for many people but it's kind of the off the beaten path uh, parts of a, of a New Zealand and Australia and Argentina Chile or, or or South Africa that are really really captivating so when you or you and Morgan you know go out to dinner are you able to sit down and just enjoy or do you compulsively check the wine bottle list as soon as you sit down? We both do, but we do it in shifts. There's never two uh, wine lists on the table. If we go to a place that we know 
you know, in the, in the city or, or surrounding areas, we kind of let, let them do the thing for us, obviously. Um, but if there's one of our favorite restaurants in the, in the city, the special treat when we go, uh, is angler. And they've got such an amazing list. So we make a deal that we're going to, this is going to be the ceiling on, on what we, what we treat ourselves to. And we each get to pick a wine generally always trying to share with, you know, the, the SOM team and the culinary team. We're not going to, we're not going to crush two or three bottles, but we want to try some stuff. Um, and they're always so generous with us as well with things that they've got open that they want us to try. So it's just a, it's just a really cool thing. But when we go out to uh, like a simple place, I, there's, not necessarily simple place, but a list that is a little bit more humble. You know, one of the places I find extreme happiness is in like really fun, crisp, clean Italian whites. We love pizza and there's a, a lot of really great uh, Neapolitan style pizza joints in, in, in and around the area. So, you know, something fun and, and, and delicious reminding us why, why we're in this game is not always for the, for the golden bottles, but sometimes for those little gems that, you know, a, a tiny little Falangina or a Greco de Tufo that, it just reminds you why you do this thing. You can have one or 10 glasses of those and everybody wins. When you look at the next generation of sommeliers, the you know younger generation, a lot of which that you've worked with or are working with, what do you see? What do you kind of see with them coming up in the industry? A lot of curiosity, which is awesome. And, you know, in my immediate purview of my teammates, what I, what I find interesting is uh, how much more technologically savvy uh, the younger generation is, and I'm, I'm not that old really, but, you know, growing up with technology, I've kind of watched it slowly, but surely move to many, many things. Uh, with, with that said, you know, Excel spreadsheets are not a mystery to, uh, to the younger generation and their ability to, to find information about a producer double click is insane. But I think that the curiosity, uh, is one thing that I'm, I'm enamored by this, uh, this up and coming generation. And not painting themselves in any in any formal boxes of like, just I like Bordeaux, that's it. I like Burgundy, that's it. I drink Cabernet, that's it. There, there is a curiosity to want to try so many different things, whether it be, uh, you know, a, a garage yeast female led organization of of tasting Mondus, uh, or or if it's the the craziest of crazy gnarly Grenache from from somewhere. There's nothing in between uh, that they're not willing to give uh, give it a try, give it an uh, an honest analysis and and embrace it all the same. Where do you see the wine industry headed over the course of the next decade or so? You've been in it for a while. It's shifted from Cabernet heavy to, you know, now other varietals are becoming more popular. You know, Riesling people have realized that not all Riesling's sweet. Where do you see it headed? Right now, I think that we're at the, the precipice of this really cool uh, look back to where wine was maybe 25 years ago. And obviously, we're, we're battling different arcs and challenges of, of temperature and fires and COVIDs and oh my. I think that the levels of creativity uh, over the past five years, and, and I'm going to use the term that we've used so many times, an, an ability to pivot and make something maybe non-conventional has been embraced a little bit more. And I think that we'll see more and more of that where Cabernet Sauvignon uh, is still, you know, a, a major, major player and a major varietal. I don't know. I don't know if this younger generation uh, will be able to afford a thousand dollar bottle of, of Cabernet. I don't know if they're interested in doing so. And I think that's the big challenge for, for some of the folks making, making that style of wine. And I think uh, really interesting to see like those who have, who have stayed the course, 
of making a very similar style of wine as when they first started, and those who have kind of gone gone with trends. And I think uh, I think what we'll see, uh, hopefully, is a lot more uh, ingenuity and a lot more willingness to 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 try to plant and try to cultivate uh, some more kind of fun, off the beaten path, uh, non traditional varietals in in what I I would consider California to have this incredible uh, series of mini pocket microclimates and and some celebrated uh, old vines and some serious non-celebrated old vine varieties. For example, Scott and Jenny Schultz at, at Julie, Julie Laid have, have kind of harnessed the wind with, with some of that. We made a wine with them uh, last year from the Fanucci Road Vineyard uh, Trousseau Gris. And these are like 100-year-old Trousseau Gris vines and Trousseau vines, and they're, they're truly magical. So I think the exploration into, into some of those uh, less traditional, um, more uh, more funky and fun varietals will be uh, will be the the trend that we see in the next five to ten years. What region do you think is like the next one to kind of be on the map and like explode? You know, previous people have said Michigan, Mexico, certain parts of the Pacific Northwest, and like certain parts of Oregon outside of like Pinot Noir. But is there something that you see or a region that you're like? Yeah, they're doing some interesting stuff like that could blow up in the next few years. I may kick myself for saying this in 10 years when it's untenable, but I think what's happening uh, in certain pockets of Sonoma and and uh, Mendocino, Anderson Valley are are truly uh, special. So many cool pockets of vineyards and uh, I think they're easy to forget about in some markets or they just not, they don't make it there, but some Anderson Valley and Mendocino uh, producers making some spectacular spectacular wines and i also uh i also think you know obviously sonoma's had its moment in the sun and in many ways uh washington and and oregon have had had kind of their first step and i think the next steps for them will be really interesting domestically michigan is fascinating to me i've had some some really amazing wines and i've had some some cherry wines that i'm not crazy about but new york has always been some a place uh that that is interesting to me but i i will say that uh i think mexico is one of those one of those budding regions that it houses the oldest uh, oldest winery in the Americas. If you've been to some of the restaurants and seen some of the cuisine in Mexico City and, and beyond, and in, in, in Baja, uh, and some of the wineries, it is second to none. Some of the experimentation with interesting grapes in in cooler, high desert coastal climates has been really fun to watch. And I think uh, wine from Mexico is is definitely on on the radar. What's next for you professionally? What else you got going on aside from running a grand award wine program there at a three Michelin star restaurant? For the time being, you know, uh, and as long as they'll have me, I'm enjoying my time here at Single Thread. For me, it's a, a truly an honor to walk in the doors every day and also being part of, of the growth. Uh, we've had so many challenges. I think everybody who's been in the restaurant business can, can attest to this, but specifically here, um, right when we get back on our feet, we get punched or get knocked down. And the resilience, the camaraderie and the collaborative effort that is single thread is, is hard to step away from uh, or, or find or recreate anywhere else. So I think when the time comes, um, you know, I'll, I'll hand it off to, to someone a little more spry and who hasn't worked the floor of restaurants since they were 17. Uh, but um, you know, for the time being, I think my role will continue to change and evolve. Uh, you know, I still like to work a, a station every now and again. Um, I still enjoy being on the floor. Um, 
I just can't do it as, as well or as long as maybe I, I, I used to when I was in my 20s. Um, but I, you know, being part of this, this company's growth um, has been really, really cool. And they're doing these, these moves and steps in the right direction. We've just, uh, uh, it's no longer a secret. We just uh, acquired a 11 room in uh, called the River Bell. And it's being run by by a single thread alumnus. Uh, there's so many so many amazing irons in the fire uh, along with those uh, with that arc. But it's an 11 room inn that used to be uh, uh, Simi's old uh, residence uh, right on the river. It's called the River Bell, uh, and there will be some some minor and major changes to that property that I think will be uh, super duper exciting down the road and offers. Uh, us a little bit more bandwidth to uh, to provide an, an, a really incredible in-room stay for, for our guests who maybe uh, couldn't stay in one of the five rooms here. Um, there's some other things that I'm not sure that I'm able to to discuss, but they're they're exciting and they're uh, you know it's kind of taking taking that foundation and building a third floor on top of it. Uh, you know to be part of that to to be part of the growth, not only you know with the company but watching uh, other people achieve their goals and dreams. Uh, is a pretty cool thing. So I'll be here for a bit, uh, seeing that through. So we got a handful of questions left, some that we ask everybody who comes on the podcast. But before we get to those, a couple questions kind of left behind. So this next one comes from Master Smalley, Vinnie Morrow of uh, Press in uh, Napa Valley there. He left behind a question. What is the biggest interpersonal challenge you've had coming up through your career? That's a great question. Vinny is one of the smartest, most thoughtful human beings on the planet. So if you would have just told me that question, I would have been like, that can be like three people. And it's, it's probably Vinny. First, what an amazing human being he is. And, and if you haven't been to press, uh, it is, forgive my language, it's fucking incredible. What Philip and, and, and him have done is, is like this amazing dynamic duo of telling this incredible story about Napa. I think the biggest interpersonal challenge that I've had, this is turning it off, is probably the the hardest thing. And I have to remind myself to do it all the time, turning it off and then letting some things lie until the morning. I like to finish a task list. I like to get things done, but every now and again, it's okay to have a, a rolling list of duties and, a, and an unfinished project or two. Those are probably the two things that battle themselves the most uh, is turning it off and like not bringing it home. If I have a good day or a bad day, trying to treat those as, uh, as even keel as I possibly can. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Can be anything. Something that I ask myself all the time is, did I leave it better than I found it? And I think a path forward on that is, what are you doing to help change for the better the wine industry that you want to see, the hospitality interest industry that you want to see in five to 10 years? This next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, what is your Moby Dick wine? That one wine that you haven't tried, that you still want to try if you can find it and afford it, and why? Honestly, I'd have to say the Moby Dick wine would be uh, 1929 Agudecho de la Tache. I've gotten a, a small sniff of this wine once in my life, an even smaller taste, and it was electric. It was incredible. And that little parcel ended up becoming... Latash. It's just the top portion uh, of the vineyard. And it was just a few years before all of the, the, the ground crew and AOCs and all that jazz came together. And it is a Moby Dick. It's a unicorn. It's a, I don't even know how many of those bottles would, would still persist to this day. But if I could find one 
and albeit afford it, I would love to try one of those. So this last set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, so a nice compare and contrast for the listeners across the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your sommelier career thus far when you look back on it? It's tough to answer that question with just one individual. Obviously, um, one of my first friends and mentors was Richard Betts. I love him. I love his energy. Always loved his spirit. I'm, I'm beyond impressed that this guy still runs like 50-mile marathons for whatever reason that he does that. It's awesome. Um, but his curious spirit and, and willingness to just go in has always been something. I'll say that led to an introduction to, to Bobby Stuckey, who I, I admire both personally and professionally. But there's just such a litany of people. Uh, June Rodil would be one of them. Tough as nails, smart as a whip. And she knows her shit inside and out. And if she doesn't, she's going to learn it better than the next two people. And then Melissa Monosoff and, and Shane Bjornholm have been instrumental in positivity and, and growth, even if I'm feeling like a, like a bum. Without forgetting, I would say Morgan. Morgan, when we first met, was she knew enough to be dangerous to know. I think in the house, she's the, clearly the smarter one. Um, but but it's changed the way that I I think and I operate uh, with wine in a great in a in a great way. And then finally, I would say Chef Kyle uh, here. I know that's a lot. Those are the big ones. I think uh, the way that Chef Kyle yeah, thinks Chef about food, Kyle thinks about thinks about the story that we tell uh, has changed a lot of of the way that I would have traditionally thought about telling a story of wine. What is your desert island wine? You know, I, we've talked a lot about Burgundy. We've talked a lot about other things that are captivating, but Desert Island, it's probably going to be hot and I'll need something super refreshing. Um, so I would say I'll splurge a little bit, but still have money left over for a second bottle. Uh, we'll do Keller, uh, Hubacher, 2019, uh, Gross Riesling to quench the thirst. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So person gets stuck at an airport, stuck overnight. You guys aren't open, but they reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? What would you recommend? If you're in Mexico City, go to Quintanil. Do that. Jorge Vallejo and his wife and, and their amazing team. That, that is truly one of the most uh, incredible dining experiences I've ever had from top to bottom, left to right. Uh, I would do it again. I would go tomorrow if I could. It's that incredible and that thoughtful. And then if you were stuck over in San Francisco, uh, go check out Lazy Bear or Angler. You'll not be disappointed. You might have a hangover, but you'll be okay. Bucket list travel destination and bucket list restaurant. So place you have not traveled to yet, you still want to visit. And then restaurant you have not dined at yet, but you still want to get to. It's been nine years in the making. I, I had a, a trip scheduled to Tokyo and Kyoto and Hokkaido when I was turning 30. Uh, and the earthquake derailed that and then just never materialized into another trip. But I think uh, Den in Tokyo uh, would be a, a number one, just really exploring Japan and, uh, and getting lost uh, in that I think would be incredible. And Den, I've read so much about it, follow their Instagram, it just makes me hungry and makes me want to, their version of, of, of the story of food they're trying to tell. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? So many things. At Papa's, an elderly gentleman was choking um and pretty in pretty blue state and the general manager at the time jason egan basically saved this this dude's life heimlich mouth to mouth and when the when the ambulance arrived then this was like a 12 15 minute thing uh credited jason and his ems training to saving this guy's life everybody in the dining room the lights went up music went off 
everybody in the dining room was obviously eyes on on this person. It didn't happen in like a corner. It happened like in the middle of the dining room, in the middle of the Saturday night service. And the craziest part about it was that the gentleman, one of the gentlemen at the table was like, how much do we owe you for the dinner? And Jason was like, nothing. Like, are you kidding? <laughs> that was insane. I, I've been trying to piece the dining room back together and act like uh, everything was normal and go back to celebrating people's experiences was a tough, a tough thing to do. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself. I am here to admit that I'm addicted to Swedish fish. Uh, not allowed to keep them in the house because like I'll buy a, one of the big bags and uh, I time goes away. It's like the space time continuum. And it just, I look down and the bag is gone. The guiltiest of guilty pleasure is I love, I love pizza in all shapes and sizes. I love pizza. So I've never met a pizza that, that I'm not crazy about. Wine recommendations. So we broke this into four categories. So $20 and under $50 and under a hundred dollars and under, and then a hundred over no limit. But if you have three wines that are all under $20, they can fit for each category. So you're not limited, but you know, just don't go over. That's kind of the, the rules we set aside. So what do you think people should be drinking within those categories? First one is $20 and under. First one is $20 and under. I would say, um, Barbara Ozelt Zobinger, uh, Gruner Veltliner, hundred percent. It's, it's delicious. It's crisp. It's light. It's dangerously good. It's one of those wines that if you have next to you while you're cooking dinner uh, or prepping dinner, then you need to pick something else out for dinner, dinner, because it's gone. Zero to 50. I hope I'm not shortchanging anyone, but I've seen it for the price, so I'm going to go for it. Uh, I think uh, Jolie Laid uh, North Coast Syrah. Zero to 100. Ronca di Cialoschio Patino from the 90s. You can get that for around 100 bucks. And then 100 and over. I think to have uh, have a moment in the in the sun, something that is just bonkers delicious would be 2007 uh, Chateau Rias Pignon Grenache. 100% is not a wine on the planet Earth that tastes anything close to it. What is one book focused on wine or beverage that you think everybody should read? It's a wonderful question. There's so many great books out there, but I think one that has um, just helped a lot of people see that wine is a bigger subject than they could possibly imagine is uh is any copy really of kevin Israeli's windows on the world i think it's just such a great introductory to uh the next rung of holy shit wine books if you look at a at a at a map there versus a map in a hugh johnson novel it's a it's a crazy difference but i think the the information is really really solid and really uh digestible and it's not a book that is is so intimidating. It's such a friendly uh, entrance into into the world of wine and wine regulations and all the goods. Last question. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, if you were, is there a moment, episode, scene from his time that still stands out to you? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, a culinary influencer, chef, uh, Emeril, Julia Child, Yen Ken Cook, anything like that that you always kind of gravitated towards? I love all of them. Anthony Bourdain, I miss I miss him all the time. I miss hearing that that voice of his. I actually almost wore a, a shirt with, with him giving the, the finger uh, today, but I thought that that would be unwise. I didn't know if this podcast was going to be uh, videotaped or not. With that said, um, I think one of the most uh, incredible moments was when he was in Tangier, Morocco. I love that episode. And, and years after that, I had some friends who, who got married uh, and part of their wedding trip was going and kind of retracing those steps in Tangier 
Uh, and I was lucky enough to be a uh, part of that trip. And it was such a cool experience. But I have a picture out of uh, outside of Cafe Baba, essentially wearing the same stupid sunglasses and, and everything. Uh, I think that was one of the most impactful. But really, all of all of the the content there is always such a joy to watch uh, to watch him attack food and and enjoy a a new culture the way that he did. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. On Instagram, uh, it's uh, PYCM McFall uh, or PYC McFall. So I'm a clearly a, a huge Pierre of Colomaray fan. And it happened as an accident. One time we write our names on, on our, our wine glasses uh, for tasting at the Somme station. And uh, somebody just put a cork that broke from a PYCM to, to my last name, Chris McFall. Uh, so there was just the, the CM portion, <laughs> somebody wrote a PY, uh, before the cork. And I was like, that's going to, that's going to stick. And now we have to adjust my Instagram handle. So it's at PYC McFall, uh, easy to find there. Uh, and that's, that's really where I am on, on social media. I don't really mess with Twitter. I think I still have a Twitter account and Facebook. I check, you know, like once every six years when I feel like I've been, uh, hacked or something, uh, or somebody wishes me a happy birthday and I'm like, Whoa, shit, I forgot I had this. But yeah, that's that's really where you, where you can find me. Uh, and if if not, you can find me generally at Single Spread or walking the streets of uh, of Healdsburg, going to and from one of our our store locations. And Single Thread, you can make reservations. Uh, I think they use Talk. So we use Talk at Single Thread for sure. Um, we use Talk, and uh, we release the reservations a month out. So uh, May first, we sell for June 1st. And it's a great way for, for us to plan the month and budget the month. Obviously, as we talked about earlier, you know, there, there are margins and things, but the more planning that we have, the better, I think the better job that we can do. So talk is, is the way. And then there's a, there's a wait list. So every now and again, uh, we try to try to be a little bit ahead of that. If a table opens up the opportunity to, to come in and dine is always, is always there. Sometimes all minute. So be ready. This was an awesome conversation. Super happy that we were able to get this scheduled. You've you know had amazing career up till now. Single thread we've been to um, slightly before your time, but we had a great experience. I would recommend it to anybody in the area. It's not that far. If you're staying in Napa, I think it's maybe like a 20 to 30 minute Uber ride. I mean, it's not ridiculous or anything like that to get up there. Um, or if you're staying in like Sonoma um, too as well, you know, pretty close. So um, and then Heldberg, you know, it has a few other restaurants too. It's not like you guys are out there by yourselves. So um, there's some some cool stuff, you know, nearby and, and everything too as well. So I'd recommend it to anybody who's in the, you know, Michelin dining or just looking for a great restaurant in wine country that, you know, kind of wants to get a little bit farther north. But yeah, I don't know when we'll be back out there. Yeah, make sure to hit you up uh, whenever we are. But, you know, if you ever need anything from us, feel free to reach out. We always want to support everybody as much as we can comes on the podcast because they supported us. So, you know, keep us up to date in, in any career things or anything like that. Always an open invitation to return whenever. Otherwise, stay in touch and we will be seeing you soon. Will do. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, don't keep it a secret when you make your way uh, back out to Sonoma. Love to have you. A big thanks again to Chris for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to jump on and chat about his career and the wine industry and working at Single Thread, how he got there and working in the Bay Area and Texas and all that stuff. So again, you can follow him on Instagram. PYC McFall is his handle. You can also follow the restaurant at Single Thread Farms, all one word. They also have another Instagram account. It's a Single Thread Farm Store. So it's at Single Thread Farm Store. But some of the products uh, that they have, whether they're ingredients from the farm, 
There's some stuff that they also post to about people that make their chopsticks that you use during one course and stuff like that. They put them up on their Instagram, but there's some items that you can buy if you're interested, especially if you're local too as well because of the produce aspect. So check out that Instagram too as well. There might be some stuff that you might be interested in. I don't know if they ship things, if they're you know not perishables, if you will. So you'd have to kind of look into that a little bit more, but um, they do have that account that you can check out too. Is that something that you're interested in? But make sure to follow us too as well on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com and make sure to follow the podcast on whatever podcast player or app that you use. And appreciate everybody who's been listening. Thank you for your continued support, writing in questions and comments and feedback and recommendations or getting recommendations from us. Um, we appreciate all that kind of communication and appreciate everybody continuing to help spread the word. So if you're new, welcome. If you're newer, a couple episodes in, welcome. Make sure to go through the back catalog if you've been here since the beginning or early stages of the podcast. Thank you for your continued support and continuing to listen and download the episodes every week. So uh, we want to keep having great guests on with interesting conversations for you guys to listen to. And hopefully you guys are able to make it to some of these businesses that we've had on and featured. Some are a little bit harder to get to than others. Uh, I think uh, for all of us, it's probably a challenge to get to the Maldives to visit Dave Pint's uh, restaurant there. But uh, a lot of us can get uh, you know stuff here in Columbus if you're local or you know Napa Valley is pretty easy to get to. There's direct flights out of Columbus here for us to San Francisco and you can take a ferry up. And with everything, uh, a lot of these restaurants and wine shops and businesses that we've had on are pretty accessible if it's a place that you want to go and we just want to continue to highlight those places because you know the places we've enjoyed or places that we aspire to get to here in the near future and you know we want those places to continue to be around for years and years so they're still there for us to enjoy or others to enjoy too as well uh, and kind of keep the community growing so you know again appreciate everybody who's been listening and and all the support and everything and continues to do so and um, that is it for this week and we will talk to you guys next week on thursday